Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. This episode is with Rebecca Reed. Rebecca is the milliner at Opera Australia, and in this episode, she shares with us some of her favourite productions. This was made possible thank you to the support of our wonderful podcast sponsors. These include Hatters Millinery Supplies, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, Hat Atelier, Louise McDonald Milliner, That Millinery, House of Adorn, Lifted Millinery, and we're thrilled to welcome the support of Hat Mags, the publisher of the Hat Magazine and Hat Lines. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes, either on your podcast app or through our website. We'd love to invite you to become a sponsor of this podcast series if you are interested or able. Just head to www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo or there's also a link on our website. If you have any questions about being a sponsor, please send us through a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me today to talk hats. And a question I love to start with is how did you first become involved in millinery? Wow. Okay. Um, to make a very long story short, okay, I went to Charles Sturt University and did a Bachelor of Design in Theatre and Television, which I have actually just found out. They've basically just cut the course. So mm-hmm. it was a wonderful experience um, that sadly is going to be no more as of next year. Um, so within that course, it did a little bit of costume, lighting, sound, set, props and stage management. And I sort of went more towards costume design because that's how my brain is wired. And then I had a wonderful lecturer called Julia who was a textile lecturer and she said, you should apply for the Thelma Affett Award, which is an Australian award, which is for Mm -hmm. costume people for further study. So I applied and there was, I think, three or four other people that applied that year and everybody wrote in their sort of blurb that they all wanted to study offshore and nowhere in the guidelines did it stipulate, it just said it's a grant for future study. But they didn't award it to anybody because everybody wanted to study offshore and they thought, well, people should study within Australia. So when I was researching that as like, what would I like if I had this money that suddenly came to me, where would I go? What could I do to study? And one of it was millinery and it was at the Kensington and Chelsea college in London. Um, and Kirsten Scott was the head teacher there at the time. So I ended up having this very random conversation with Kirsten. I think it was like eight thirty Australian time and whatever the time was in England And so she basically said, um, so you can sew. And I said, yes, I can sew. And and I said, I can use an industrial sewing machine and I can do this. And I've kind of done that. She's like, great, you're in the course. I'll see you in two weeks time. (laughs) So I packed up my life and I moved to London and I got my London A to Z and I worked out how to get to Kensington Chelsea College. And I started on the first day and it was a, and high national certificate which I think is like a in Australian terms it's sort of like the cert for at TAFE so you've should have done previous millinery stuff to get into the course but I hadn't and I was with this class with everybody who'd done a year of millinery beforehand and Kirsten on the first day said okay everybody 
go grab a block and a straw and off you go. And I was like, um, what's a block? And then what's a straw? And, and that's how I got into millinery. So <laughs> it was a jump in the deep end and try and swim thing. And I had yeah. some wonderful lecturers that year at Kensington and Chelsea. I had Kirsten and Jane Smith taught us theatrical millinery and Ian Bennett was also very involved with the course at the time and he was very 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 generous with his knowledge and his patience and his yeah just the people that we had there were great teachers to learn from so what was going to be just going to England for one year to learn millinery turned out to me staying there for four years (laughs) and I did what every sort of Australian did where I had four different jobs and I ended up working for sort of three different milliners all at once and they all knew that I was working for each of them and I made sure that everybody knew that I was working for everybody and I had my days where I was where I was so um yeah I got to work with Bridget Bailey, Noel Stewart, Misa Harada, I worked in, in Stephen Jones' workroom for three quarters of a year um, and sort of other snippets of people as well. So that's how I got into millinery. And had you done, was there any aspect of that in your your um, theatre course that you'd done? None. None. Whatsoever. And you just went, let's have, let's give, let's, yep. let's give millinery Pretty much. a try. Pretty much. It was, and then it's like, you've got to learn to sew with a thin. I'm like, oh, okay, I better go buy a thimble. Where, where do I go get a thimble from? So, um, no, there was zero millinery in the course. It was just a very passionate lecturer, Julie, who taught us textiles but said, like, you can do anything that you want to do, just try, go, explore. Um, but I had never done millinery. So, oh, uh, no, I, I made a theatrical piece, we'll call it, for the Golden Gun Awards, which was happening in Wagga. It's no longer around. Um, And it had horsetails in it and wire. And I somehow managed to find a head block that would be 57 centimetres. And I kind of made something and I entered it. And I think I placed and got some money from it. So that was the only bit of millinery that I did. But it was no way um, traditional at all if that makes any sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so while you were in London, did you have a plan that you were, um, you, you now live back in Australia. When you're in London, did you know how long you were going to stay for? Are you just there to enjoy it for as long as you could? Or did you go in with a, an idea of that? When I first went to London? Yes. Um, no, it was just to be, go to London for a year and then see what happens. And uh, my dad said to me at the time, he goes, if you do two winters in London, you stay. And he was English. Um, and my half-brother had moved over to London and he he went for two winters and is still living there now. And he's been there for over 20 years. Um, when I was in London, I actually met my now husband over there. So that was... But the reason why I came back to Australia, sorry, I've just gotten so sidetracked. I do that. Sorry. Um, I promised a university friend of mine, Mel, that I would make her wedding dress. So I came back to make her wedding dress. And that was 
that was the thing that brought me back to Australia. Plus my parents were getting older and I wanted to sort of spend a bit more time with them. And, and so I came back, but I wasn't able to get any millinery work. I actually worked as a postie for three years. <laughs> I think it was three years. Maybe it was two years. I can't remember. Yeah. I used to deliver post when I first came back to Australia, I was a postie. And then, so when you, um, after your post, experience yeah. um what was the the gateway position back into to millinery for you okay so at the time when I was working as a postie um my godmother introduced me to Catherine Kelly so I was helping Catherine when she was in her first studio space in Roselle not the amazing beautiful big one that she's got now in like her very uh in her smaller studio so I would deliver post finish at two o'clock in the afternoon, then drive over to Roselle and help Catherine through here. So that's how I started um, helping here. And then I also did a little bit of work for Suzio Rock for a little bit. Um, and how I came to the opera was a friend of a friend spotted the job listing on Arts Hub, which I would not have seen otherwise. I was not looking for, you know, a millinery job in a newspaper at all and it was that person telling my friend penny hey there's a job rebecca should apply and so that's how i applied for the opera job somehow oh, they told me once i think it was nearly 50 people that applied wow and um when they emailed me saying please can you come in for an interview i was actually over in england getting married and i said i can um, I'm just, I'm not in the country right now. I'll be back as of this date. And I think I was one of the last people to be interviewed. Uh, somehow I managed to make it into the opera. Um, I think with the power of hindsight, I think one of the things which uh, benefited me at the time or what helped me get the position when I was working with Stephen Jones um, in his workroom I was in the manufacturing section. So we would have to copy hats. There'll be one hat and then you'd have to copy it for production and copy the trimmings and do all that. So I think that was probably one of the skills that I had, which benefited me getting the opera job because there is quite a lot of, no, not quite a lot. Uh, quite often I have to reproduce a hat which has been on stage for a while and is either the wrong size or it's coming to its last legs or something like that. And I, so I have to reproduce and replicate that existing hat. So I think that was possibly one of the um, skills that I had, which benefited me getting a job at the opera. And I've been there for nearly 10 years now. So I'm obviously doing something right. <laughs> they're still employing me. And some days I think I'm like, Oh gosh, Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I made it to the opera. I'd never done any theatrical melody before either, other than the small bit I did with Jane Smith in the course. Um, yes. But in England, I was just doing fashion millinery, which is, can be quite different, I suppose, to theatrical millinery. Yeah. And, and how did you find that transition when you first started? Were there things that you had to adapt about your techniques and how did you discover the differences between the fashion millinery and the theatrical millinery? Um, so when I started at the opera, they had um, 
there they brought in um a really lovely person called rick mcgill who is a sydney theatrical milliner and he was there to kind of help i suppose transition me or sort of show me the ropes a little bit um skills that i've had to adapt and learn um i suppose it's more materials are different we use different materials um i can count on the number of fingers on my hand how many times i've actually used cinema for a theater hat um it's it's very rare when when i first started the opera um we hadn't discovered phosphate yet so we were using um military canvas and things like that and i had never um seen that anywhere before so yeah there's i think there's a few different materials that gets used in theatrical millinery versus um fashion millinery as such um and as far as skill sets go no it's it's still the same like sewing wise is still the same and yes i use a sewing machine and yes i use glue and yeah so um oh crin loops there we go that's one thing which i hadn't seen before i don't know maybe that's just me um yeah we use crin loops to hold the hats onto the wigs so that's something that i hadn't ever seen i was like oh okay righto and when you're working on a a production um Mm -hmm. do you work in-house at the um opera production company Yeah. yeah Yeah, so um, I work in the wardrobe department at the Opera Centre. The Opera Centre is separate to the Opera House. Uh, Many people think that I get to work at the Opera House. I do sometimes, but Opera Australia is a completely different company. Um, So we work at the Opera Centre, which is in Surrey Hills in Sydney. And I work within the wardrobe department. Um, There is a mezzanine floor, which is where I am with the wig makers as well so i work alongside the wig department too because we have to work quite closely sometimes um so i can't really do much off-site i have not done any work off-site because there's always it's it's not just working on one show i could be working on five or six different productions at once and in my small house that i've got here um i actually only own one hat block (laughs) in my (laughs) personal collection um so yeah, I have to work on site and use their equipment and their stuff and then have fittings and talk to designers and work with the workroom and work with the cutters and all that. So it definitely works a lot better working on site than working mm. remotely. Yeah. And you mentioned you could have multiple projects, um, five or six on the go. How does that work? Are you do you know in advance how many you're working on and how do you how do you know what you're going to be making? Um so the opera each year releases their season. So there's a Sydney summer season, a Melbourne autumn season, which is when the company goes down to Melbourne and the Australian ballet goes up to Sydney. They switch venues. Then yes. there's Sydney winter and Melbourne spring. And then there's a few other, um, there's opera on the harbour. There might be a musical. Then there's the regional and touring Oz opera production, which is the one that goes all around Australia. There's school shows so there there are actually I had a quick look just before I started talking to you um I looked at the 2020 brochure and there was over 16 productions that would have been going through this year so I get a a document which has um the operas listed for Sydney summer Melbourne autumn Sydney winter Melbourne spring and it's broken down and then they have sort of on it 
um, when they're going to be starting fitting and then it's um, when it's going to be trucked because obviously there's time between having to leave the venue to leave the opera center to get into the to the venue so you've got the truck time or the ship time and then when it's um actually on stage so it is there is quite a a time some are quite mm, some are short some are longer from when i actually start to when it hits the stage so it's just a matter of having to look at this program and talking to people and having meetings with people and then working out what is going to be going and what the order is going to be and as far as principal fittings versus um the ensemble fittings and things like that um it's also it's it's not as straightforward as just 16 productions some are revivals which go into storage and come back out a very good example of that is love om um that's been going for nearly 10 years now <laughs> i made the original hats and they are still going um <laughs> They have, oh gosh, those hats could tell some stories. Oh my gosh. They sure. have done a lot of shows. They do a lot of shows each year. So um, if it's a revival, um, then the revival, the revival hats probably need a refresh or a fix or a resize or uh, every single hat is different. Um, and then if it's a complete new build, then that has a bit more of a lead time from when you initially start talking to the designers to when you start manufacturing to when it hits stage. So changes for every single opera if that makes any sense but yes, yes it's um lots of trying to be organized which uh i'm trying to work on <laughs> but i've made every deadline so far i've made every deadline yeah yeah <laughs> it always gets there yes and it's all i must be must be quite a um it's quite an adaptive process too because it's not just down to you necessarily getting to decide and design on the hat but you're working within a team of other creatives and yes. makers as well yes so i don't actually ever get to design anything i'm not i'm not a designer so the opera employs a costume designer who will design everything from their hat the wigs makeup clothes shoes and then there'll be a costume illustration um some um some designers are very uh, detailed with their illustrations um and some designers are a bit more freehand <laughs> with their illustrations so um my job is to turn what is the 2d on paper into 3d reality so i i can suggest some things that what they're hoping for may not actually work <laughs> um i can also suggest uh, there's also a word in the opera workroom that gets used a lot, which yeah, is budget. <laughs> there's not <laughs> enough budget for this. Um, yeah, so the budgets can also uh, change their designs a bit <laughs> yeah. from what is what is the first draft through to what is the final it can evolve and adapt quite a lot so it sometimes never looks like what it was right back at the beginning um yes so i i have to speak to designers and speak to um the costume supervisors that are working on that particular show and then you know speak to my the wardrobe boss and 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 go from there and yeah so i don't actually get to design but i i i do have a bit of input into what can work and what can't work so to speak 
And in terms of those discussions, because millinery materials are, although a little bit different to fashion millinery, but um, materials are quite specific to um, the industry. Uh, mm. do, you, do you source those or assist in the sourcing? And maybe um, if, when you get that sketch, they say, let's make this in, I don't know, flat, let's make this a flat pattern hat. And you're like, oh, actually, that would be better as a felt hat. Is there that kind of discussion that goes on? There, there is that discussion that goes on. Um, but as far as the sourcing goes, we have a buyer called Miranda Brock and an assistant buyer called Nicole, who, um, Artios, who they do all the buying. It's their job to buy and source. And Miranda and Nicole might start buying three quarters of a year before we might even speak to a designer or half a year before we might even speak to a designer. So, um, yes, I, I can suggest that some materials may not work and have a bit of input that way, but I don't actually ever do any of the buying as such. Um, yes, there has been times when uh, a designer might have one particular idea in their head and I say, well, actually, I think this is going to work better as a felt or we can use a wool felt as a base and then we can cover it with something else. So. Um, Yes, I, I, I can have a little bit of input that way. And then there are some designers who start off saying, like, I know nothing about millinery and you're the expert, so what do you suggest? So it, every designer works differently and every designer has a different, um, I suppose, understanding of millinery or what they'd like to see achieved or, you know, millinery might be quite high, high up on their list or it might be lower down on the list of where they want to focus on. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a very big piece of string. Every single production is different and every designer works a different way. Absolutely. And what has been, so you've been with the opera, was it about 10 years, you said? And yeah, coming up to 10 years. And what have been some of your favourite productions that you've got to work on? Oh, gosh. Ah, there are so many. Um, the first big production I worked on was Bohem with... Julie, the costume designer, and my brain has just completely forgotten her surname. I'm sorry, Julie, if you're listening. Um, the budgets were more than the time budgets were also more than it was. It 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 was a bit of a different um, feel. Then there was more budget and more time. So that show is very beautiful and elaborate and textural and colourful, and that was a very big test of like can you do this and I also had Rick McGill helping me with that one and sort of semi supervising me and sort of <laughs> telling me that everything will be okay and this is the order that you need to do this in because it was the first show and first big show and I was like ah, so I cannot do, I so cannot do this and he's like it's okay this is this is what we're going to work through so he helped sort of help me through that one um then there's been the magic flute which is a Julie Tamor design. She designed The Lion King. So she actually designed the opera Magic Flute first and then went back and designed Lion King second. So there is a lot of elements within the Magic Flute opera that she refined and sort of did again for The Lion King, which is quite, it's quite interesting to watch. That was really interesting because uh, there was ballet dancers with... Uh, two meter tall e 
uh, bird heads, which had to go into a skull cap. And that was also a very, very technical production. That was the first production where we started using Fosshape within the workroom. So that production, um, we had to copy from drawings, the American production, which uh, we basically had to nail it just from a drawing, which was, um, and some measurements that were sent over. So that that is another sort of example of having to reproduce and replicate, but for Australian head sizes and Australian casting and all that. So that was another very um, big learning curve, I suppose. And yep, I also rang up Rick and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. And yeah, so he he was not able to help that time. But um, yeah, that, that's been, that's been a, a good one, which is always quite fun when it comes back. Um, and there's been other, I suppose, Another big production that maybe lots of people may have seen is My Fair Lady. Uh, yes, uh, I got to meet Julie Andrews. Yes, she, the angels sang behind her. <laughs> as they should. As they should. <laughs> yes, as they should. Um, so besides meeting Julie Andrews, My Fair Lady was huge. I suppose I had the most people working with me. Normally I work by myself or there might be one or two other people, depending on how busy it is. I think, with My Fair Lady, there was possibly six or seven of us crammed around my table. Um, so I, I was in charge of that team of people. And it was it was a long build. It was probably four or five months, I think, by the time it started to the time it finished and hit the stage. Uh, my Fair Lady was huge. Obviously, there is the very famous black and white ascot scene that every single person knows. Uh, those hats were huge. Um, they were, Bronwyn Shooks did a lot of the um, straw braid work on that because she is a master at that. And we um, seeked her help out for those tricorns and bicorns and everything else with that. Um, some of the hats were, I was able to do within the center with a cinema base and straw braid sewn on top and the larger ones we send out to Bronwyn. Um, those hats, uh, people probably didn't know that they were held onto the wigs by giant, we call them whopper poppers. So giant press studs held the stand that the hats were on onto the wig and on the stand for transport. Okay. The <laughs> transport magnets we used, very, very strong magnets to hold everything together and everything was pop popped onto the wig. So it all had to be at perfect angles. And John David Ridge, who was the associate designer, um, one of his very strong focus points uh, was uh, the angles of these hats and having to get it just so. So, yes when that scene came out on stage and I was there for the dress rehearsal and no hats fell off, I could actually <laughs> breathe out. Yes. Yes. And I went, okay, I did it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so besides my fair lady, there's lots of other hats within that. There was the cockney hats and there were straw boaters with, flowers and there were men's hats and then there was the very obviously iconic Eliza lilac wave hat um yes so my fair lady with 
reflection was a very amazing experience. If you told me at the very beginning of millinery that I would be doing a production of My Fair Lady from scratch with photos, working with the associate designer, John David Ridge, I would have told you that you're dreaming. That's not going to happen. During it, it was very stressful. Um, but with reflection and time, it was good. It was hard, but it was good. Um, and then there's other productions. Like we don't always do very big operas. There's also beautiful small productions that have come through with lovely designers, which... So it's, it's very different. Sometimes they're tiny operas and sometimes they're huge. And every opera, every opera, I learn something new or I challenge myself a little bit more. What I want to ask you about next is you mentioned in there about Foss Shape and when that came mm -hmm. um, on the market as an option for um, millinery and theatrical millinery. Um, what did that provide you in terms of options and how did you first start to use it and how has that evolved as you've progressed with the material? So the Met Opera did the magic float and in their Bible, their Bible came out and it said this photo, this material, this, 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 and then they listed fuzz shape and we all went, what, what is fuzz shape? And so then we had a conversation with them via the powers of the internet and they sort of explained about fog shape and how it was steam activated. And if you do this, this is how it works. And if you do that, and they said, but you can't really control the shrink. And at that point in time, we didn't actually have any fog shape inside the building. So I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and then Miranda, our buyer, she got some fog shape in and <laughs> there was me and Torsten, who's the head tailor <laughs> looking at this thing that looks like wadding with a block going, how does this work? Um, so, uh, in that regard, it was a it was a complete learning curve because no one had used fuzz shape. Um, fuzz shape is wonderful because it's very lightweight and very very strong. It also can work quite fast if you need it to. There isn't the drying time of stiffening and things like that. Um, it is also weather proof, weather resistant, which you have to factor in for the outside operas because always seems to rain a lot in March when they put on the outside opera, even though technically <laughs> when they did all the research, it should have been the driest time of the year, but it really is not. Um, so yes, for shape, it gets used quite a lot, mostly as like the foundation support. And then on top of that, it gets built up or we use it for armor or yes, it's pretty much, I don't think any for shape has ever walked on stage just in its natural state. I think it's always been painted or, covered or something like that but it is a very useful product in that it's speed and strong and lightweight um when you're producing the headpieces or yep. hats for the production yep. you're not putting it on someone's head there's a whole lot of other stuff that's going on there could you tell us a little bit about that process and how you how you make a hat for what's something that's so variable Sure. Okay. So um, you have the performer who, uh, if it's a man, generally, if you put a wig on and it's a hand knotted human hair wig, their 
head circumference might go up one centimeter. If it's a machine manufactured synthetic wig, it might go up two centimeters just because of the bulk. With women, obviously women have got, and men, some men have long hair. Um, women have different styles of hair, different lengths of hair. So they have to wig prep their hair, which involves pin curling their hair up and then putting a stocking cap on. So you take the measurement of their head with a stocking cap on. And sometimes this can change their head size by two, three, four centimeters, depending on how much hair they've got. And then on top of that goes the wig. So then you need to add whatever else for the wig and how it's dressed and styled. So um, generally, many opera singers have larger heads and lots of the dancers have smaller heads. It's, I can say that from looking at many people that dancers have small heads, singers have large. And so I just have lots of numbers written down. I have got the person's head circumference and then wig prep circumference and then with a wig. And so each show is different. Some hats can be made so they can be multi-sized if possible, because obviously that performer may not come back the following year or whenever this show is rebooted to fit the same hat. They might be cast as a different role or opera hats, if possible, need to be able to be adjusted in size. Um, and sometimes they're not. So then they have to be remade to copy the hat. Um, and the so biggest head I have ever made a hat for is 65 centimetres. So do you have a, what's the, the, the blocks that you make these pieces over? Are they scaled up? How do you, how do you get a block to 65 centimetres? You have one or you no. felt it up or... Um, <laughs> Yeah, you can, you, you find what you've got closest to and then you pat it out. The, the hat that was 65 centimetres was actually an Egyptian pharaoh hat and it was made out of PE foam and gold lycra. So that was kind of panelled and glued and sewn and all that sort of stuff. Um, I have been known to use a bucket and very different things to block stuff off. So... Sometimes, yes, um, blocks get padded up or I use, um, we've got a big range of wooden wig blocks, which are kind of like, uh, um, like poupee heads. I suppose they're just a, a very generic head shape. So I've got everything from 52 up to 64. So that can be a starting point. And then I go from there. But obviously every single hat is different. So it, it's not, necessarily just block a felt and off you go it's some uh like cut and sew some are uh, pieced together from foam like um dense foam not sort of your spongy foam um yeah so it, it's it's find it's find what i have that might replicate it and then go from there i suppose and pray a little bit <laughs> and have a few and and sit there and pray to the millionaire gods that it's going to fit <laughs> yeah yeah and what's one of the strangest materials you've made a headpiece out of mm, that's a good question um i have used fly screen 
I've used fiberglass rods. I have used, I've used leather, but that's not necessarily a strange piece. I once, um, it wasn't for an opera show. It was the opera decided to fundraise amongst their patrons. Um, and one of the fundraising things was a custom made hat from the milliner. She brought in her taxidermy peacock. I, I had to pull apart her taxidermy peacock and turn it into a hat. So, um, oh, wow. feathers of it. Yeah. It got transformed into a hat. That, that was an interesting thing. What a, yeah. what a strange project. <laughs> yeah. What a strange project. Um, strange materials. We also, I also get to work quite closely with props. Um, and I, I've had to use watering cans and turn them into hats, tambourines. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Lots of things that you wouldn't necessarily think would become a hat have become hats. Yeah. There's uh, a, a section of the opera that's called it's the school shows. And so they go around the schools um, performing and the designers often have a lot of fun doing that so that's when that's the watering can hat and things like that so yeah it, it you get these things on your desk you go oh okay i've i have to make this stay on ahead okay all right yeah just give me a few minutes to think about it um yeah so i do get to work quite closely with props and i go over and i'm like uh carlos what do i do for this or can you drill some holes in this or how am i going to make this work so yeah Lots of, I suppose, yeah, fly screen, fiberglass. Um, it, it often depends on what or where the opera is going to be. If it's outside, inside, if it's schools, it's got to be really um, strong because they tour, they might do two or three shows in different schools each day and it's on and off and chucked in a car and moved and everything else like that. So, yeah. And do you get to, once you produce the hats for production, do you get to attend the runs to see, to see the pieces on stage? What's the process once you've completed a piece? Um, so that's a good question. It changes depending on the opera. If, if it's a new opera and a new build and it is quite hat heavy, um, sometimes I'll be called down to the technical dress or the dress rehearsal. Um, just to make sure there's no issues. Um, so one of those examples was My Fair Lady and Magic Flute and sort of very hat-heavy productions. I sometimes will be called down earlier. Um, otherwise, yes, I do get to attend the... Um, it's called the general rehearsal, which is when they have basically a full audience, but it could just be family and friends and... Um, people like that and so we will see the, the operas then if it's a revival uh we can go and see it but then we have to make up the time so it it all depends on what else is happening at the time sometimes i don't get to see everything i think last year i think there was a whole season where it was really 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 busy and i didn't actually get to see anything because the general rehearsals are happening at the same time as I had fittings and 
I just, yeah, sometimes time is against you as far as letting you see productions. And what's one of the great advantages or what's one of the things you enjoy about working in that uh, creative space within the opera production room? There is an amazing array of knowledge and skill amongst everybody who works there. Um, so that is really, really wonderful. Everybody's very, very high skilled. And it is nice, even though I work by myself, um, well, not, I'm in the same room as other people, but I am quite often the only milliner there. If I have an issue, I can go down and either I can talk to the wiggies about it or I can go downstairs and talk to one of the cutters and say, I really don't know how to do this. Do you have any thoughts or can I just bounce ideas off you? So it, it is really nice to be able to do that and have other people to um, talk ideas with and things like that. So everybody who works there is very knowledgeable and very, very generous with their help. And that's nice. And I've been there for nearly 10 years and it's like a little family. Um, and I haven't been actually back at the opera since March. So it's nearly five months that I, that we have been stood down. <laughs> the workroom has been stood down. So yes, um, it's interesting times. Yeah. And so with, um, you're based in, up in Sydney, so um, COVID's had quite an impact on the production. Um, is there an idea, well, no one knows the timeline that's going to return, return to work, return to, to shows and theatre and all that. Um, do you have any pieces coming up that you know will be in one of the future upcoming productions we can look forward to? Devereaux, which was meant to be, hitting the stage June, July. It has an Italian director and Italian designer and obviously um, COVID happened and everything got shut down. So I was in the process of starting making wide collars, big wide collars um, and, and talking to the designer about that and trying to work out patterns. And there was a whole lot of, budget there's that word again um budget with trying to shuffle everything around um so Devereux is on hold I think the opera has cancelled over 500 productions this wow. year they have recently just announced that they will not be resuming anything they were trying to work on um they were hoping to get a production of the ring up in Brisbane but that's had to be postponed so it, it's going to be very interesting to see where the company goes next as far as were three years ago, four years ago, whenever they were working on the 2021 season on paper and be like, we're going to do this show and we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll get all these performers in and all these designers and have all the contracts out. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what they're going to do for next year. Um, so I, I don't actually know when anything that I've been working on is going to hit the stage. It's, it's all this very big limbo. So I think one of your questions you're going to ask me is what are you working on now? And yes, <laughs> um, nothing. I have two young kids at home. So I, uh, me doing millinery happens 
at the opera. That is, that is my downtime. Um, I haven't really done any millinery since being off. I, I feel like I might not even remember how to do millinery by the time I go back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it will come back. There's some, some train muscles in there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. So yes, yes. In answer to your, when is things going to hit the stage? I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I've got no idea. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. Yeah, such a challenge. Yeah. But um, it's, it's wonderful to, um, you know, in, hopefully um, at one stage the opera will be able to return to their productions and you'll be able to get back to some hat making. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. Who knows what the future holds, but yes, yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting hats with me, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you as part of our podcast series. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lauren. listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Rebecca. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. How does Millinery Supply? The Millinery Association of Australia. Catherine Cherry Millinery. Hat Academy. The Essential Hat. Hat Atelier. Louise McDonald Milliner. Fat Millinery. House of Adorn. Lifted Millinery. And Hat Mags. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes. That's either on your podcast app or through our website. We really appreciate their support. Are you interested in becoming a podcast sponsor? Did you know it's just from $15 per month and it's run through a platform called Patreon? As part of your sponsorship, you receive a thank you in our monthly podcast, a link to your business on our website and in our monthly newsletter. We hope you've been enjoying this series. If you're a new listener, we welcome you and thanks so much for joining us. Have a scroll back through the feed to see if you can find some favourite episodes. If you're a long-time listener, we're so grateful to have you back. Remember that you can subscribe to our email list or to the Millinery Info podcast in your favourite app so you don't miss when another one's being released. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon.